humidity. Back chat with Jim Gould and Mike Rouse will be up and at you in just a moment. But now I say 30 and here's the news with Ben. Danish police say several people have been killed and injured in a shooting incident in a shopping center in the capital, Copenhagen. Eyewitnesses spoke of chaotic scenes after a man opened fire inside the Fields shopping mall in the east of the city. The BBC's Adrian Murray is in Copenhagen. The suspect was arrested at the scene. He's been described as a 22-year-old male ethnic Dane. We understand that the police were first notified of gunshots at the shopping centre at around 5.30pm local time. Lots of witnesses talked about hearing single loud shots and described a single gunman. Now, the police say at the moment that they just have one suspect arrested, but they haven't ruled out whether he was acting alone. They also haven't ruled out whether it was a terror attack. And the whole country is actually now on high alert. People, hundreds of people have marched in the American city of Akron in protest at the killing of a black man by police officers. Jalen Walker was shot dozens of times as he tried to flee from a traffic inspection. A lawyer for his family, Bobby DiCello, said unjustifiable force had been used and criticized police for playing footage that appears to show a shot being fired from the car Walker was driving. His name is Jalen, and he's not a monster. They want to turn him into a masked monster with a gun, and we knew that. At the time he was shot, more than 90 or 60 or whatever the unbelievable number will be, he was unarmed. Private bus owners in Sri Lanka say they're running a skeleton service as the fuel crisis worsens in the island nation. They said only 1,000 buses out of 16,000 were running due to a crippling shortage of diesel. The BBC's Anbar San Etherajan has more. They're not sure when the next supply will come. They're expecting it around the 8th or 9th. That means in the next few days, it's going to be really difficult for the public transport to operate. And the government doesn't seem to have any answer because many suppliers, they need bank guarantees because Sri Lanka has already defaulted on its debt. So many banks are not accepting the Sri Lankan letter of credit. And that's the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat with me, Jim Gould, and your co-host today, Mike Rouse. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Jim. On today's programme, we're talking about the challenges of the new administration. President Xi Jinping spelled out four expectations for the new government of John Lee after the swearing-in of the chief executive and his team on Friday. Improving governance, strengthening development, tackling deep-seated livelihood issues and ensuring harmony are all priority areas. We'll be talking to three public policy uh, specialists about this in a moment. And after 9.15 this morning, we'll be looking at the latest COVID-19 situation here in Hong Kong. You can join the conversation, leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 266. 
And we're joined now on the line by John Burns, Emeritus Professor of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong, and Andrew Leung, an international and independent China strategist and former Director of Social... Sorry, Director General of Social Welfare. And after nine o'clock, we'll also be hearing from Holok Sang, a Director of the Pansutong Shanghai Hong Kong Economic Policy Research Institute at Lingnan University. Um, uh, P- Professor Burns, first, if we could come to you. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, so John Lee's already uh, convened his first uh, cabinet meeting. He said uh, he would regard the four expectations uh, put out by President Xi as uh, key direction and blueprint for his new administration. So um, how do you think he's going to uh, begin approaching those things? Well, I think this is... Uh this is very appropriate that he look at it from this perspective. We have to drill down onto what these um, expectations actually mean. And each one of them is a long paragraph uh, and rather densely argued. But for me, the first of of these, uh, which is improving governance, actually calls for administrative reform. And I think um, I would expect to see something along these lines. Governance also means working with civil society and with the business community. And that, in order to do that effectively, you have to rebuild trust. The second of these, to me, focuses mainly on the GBA and development. And um, it does, however, mention breaking the impediments of vested interests. Well, who are the vested interests in Hong Kong? (laughs) This I think we have to pay special attention to, and we have to see how John Lee is going to break through this. And then the third of these focuses on uh, livelihood issues, to be sure, but it's entirely focused on material expectations not non-material expectations. How does the government know what the people's expectations are? The last government got into huge trouble because it assumed it knew without investigation. So this, this, I mean, what about these non-material expectations? And there are polls show that the under-30s are much more interested in these. They're also interested in in material goods, yes, of course. But, you know, there's a much higher rate of interest in these non-material things. Uh, Such as, as, Professor Burns, what what non-material expectations are are you referring to? Ah, yes, these are the things like participation, accountability, um, trust, all of all of these things which go to building uh, the political capacity part of government. So, I mean, if you look at the under-30s, polls show in Hong Kong, especially compared to mainland under-30s, a much higher interest in not just housing and all these material things, but... They have non-material expectations also. And is the government going to simply sweep these aside as the last government did? What's going to happen? Mm. 
OK, um, uh, Andrew Lone, good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, thanks for joining us. So, Always a pleasure. So uh, how do you think uh, John Lee is going to start to going about uh, tackling these priorities? Well, rather than looking at um, the kind of details of his uh, uh, coming um, proposals or tactics, it's important to understand uh, why President Xi you know, said what he did and what he has in mind. Uh, because um, for us long-time Hong Kongers, um, it's easy to remember at the beginning um, the central government kept uh, its hands off Hong Kong for you know, during the initial years. Then um, gradually a lot of problems have developed. Um, for example, uh, the younger generation have lost their sense of nationhood and then they said a, a, a very little affinity uh, to the kind of inter interactions with the mainland because the two places are intertwined together. And then uh, the feeling that um, connections with uh, the mainland uh, has eroded uh, Hong Kong's identity um, and the kind of uh, lifestyle uh, with, the, with the proliferation of milk powder shops and gold shops and so on and so forth. Um, and so um, and then eventually all these protests um, but most of all, some of these protests seem to forget that one country, two systems is, cannot work uh, without the one country. It's just like the two wings of an aeroplane. You know, that, that, so far, for the first 25 years, uh, Hong Kong, the Hong Kong people, including foreigners, including investors, seems to put their, 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 all the emphasis on the other wing, the, the two systems, forgetting about the main wing, or the equal wing at least, which is the one country, the, uh, the, 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 the sense of the, the, the one country wing means that the sense of national security, sovereignty. So um, he will look at each of the so-called um, four musts, M-U-S-T, must, you know, the uh, presidency's uh, opening remarks. Um, Hong Kong must, for example, um, uh, fully implement or accurately implement the one country, two systems. And you look at the raw material expectations, for example, um, the one man, one vote, um, it wasn't included in the joint declaration um, with Britain, but it was inserted in the basic law, which is Beijing's law, but on the condition that the candidates have to be pre-screened. Now, that's not Western democracy, but that's Hong Kong. So the misconception is that somehow Hong Kong has to follow the Western concept of democracy. So that's not accurate interpretation of one country, two systems. But so the, the, the universal package was inserted, and there is the failure to enact Article 23. Um, and then, of course, that led to the kind of 35-plus um, 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 uh, uh, mutual destruction package uh, trying to bring down the whole government. And that's why the insistence that the patriots must govern Hong Kong. Now, coming to the raw material kind of expectations, President Xi did mention uh, in his, um, apart from the four must, there was the four hopes. Uh, the last of the four hopes is that um, the Hong Kong has got to ensure um, a kind of uh, calm, uh, 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 a harmonious society. Harmonious society means that there is 
um, uh, meeting the expectations, the rising expectations mm. of the young people, mm. um, not only for material wants, but their fulfillment. Um, and then the, the, the social divide uh, between the haves and the have-nots. Um, so I think that there is a, if you look at the four uh, musts and the four hopes, they actually refer to a lot of problems Hong Kong has been facing for the past 25 years. Andrew, isn't the right course forward? Isn't one of the problems behind this a structural one that no matter what the outcome of elections, whether at district level or LegCo level or anything else, the opposition, in inverted commas, for want of a better term, and I hope maybe John can give us a better term, can never be the government. They won't be the governing party. We're not going to have that change that is uh, uh, fundamental in Western democracy, which is that the, the opposition becomes the government. That, well, that could never happen. Well, I, I wouldn't say that. You stick to the right from the start. But now, of course, this is not possible because after what happened, you know, all these um, uh, activists uh, who want to sort of do away with the safeguards enshrined in Hong Kong's basic co uh, mini constitution, they are no longer there. And, and, and it doesn't mean that there is only a one voice in the Legislative Council. Even now, with all the patriots uh, all in place, you can see, you can just watch uh, the next electoral meeting. You can see a lot of the new legislators have to, to get their voices heard because they, 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 are, they, are, they are being elected, even from a, 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 a different constituency. And each wants to make their mark. But on the other hand, if um, the, the, the rules, the safeguards have been followed, um, there is no reason. Because don't forget that all these c candidates um, uh, for, the, for the chief executive, for example, have to be pre-screened. Well, for example, um, I remember at the time when Xi uh, Bai Leung um, went into the fray uh, together with uh, Tang, well, both candidates were acceptable by, by Beijing. So um, you, you've got to, 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 to accept this reality. This is not Western democracy. No, this is right. democracy with, chi with Chinese, <laughs> uh, with China and Hong Kong characteristics. John, how can, let's get John back in. How can these non-material uh, wishes be achieved? Okay. I mean, one thing that I think John Lee could focus on is accountable government. This is in the basic law. Locally accountable government, in addition to, of course, accountable to the central government. And this is where LegCo can play a more independent role. You, you know, uh, Xi Jinping also talked about the relationship between the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary, and how they are all working together on the same project, to be sure. But he also talked about checks and balances. So I think we need to restore some accountable government, locally accountable government. Now, how could this be done? In John Lee's manifesto, it clearly says he thinks Hong Kong's government's performance in the fifth wave of COVID should be reviewed. Let's LegCo let's take that up. Let's LegCo, you know, they uh, set up a select committee to review this. And, you know, other things, too. If we 
perceived that LegCo and the community was able to hold the government to account. We're talking about the last government in this case, although are we still in the fifth wave? Or is this the sixth wave? I don't know. Uh, we haven't been told by Professor Lowe about this yet. So, so things like this, locally accountable government, in my view, um, under Carrie Lamb, the local accountability system was just debased. And the government has never been held to account for its role in the 2019 chaos, uh, for example. And I don't anticipate that this will ever happen. But I think account accountability is one of the things that non-material values that uh, some people in Hong Kong have. And I think that, you know, why can't this LegCo do that? I agree that nobody, I never said Western anything. I didn't even use the word democracy. So I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about in the reality of Hong Kong today, what can be done. More can be done to encourage people to participate. After all, this is what citizenship is all about, and we are all citizens, right? Okay, uh, there's a message here on our Facebook page which I'd like to ask you both about. Uh, this is from a listener TC, says, The most important priority for the John Lee administration is to decide whether to continue the current pandemic restriction policy in hoping for border reopening with mainland China or integrate with the rest of the world, uh, which has largely moved on from the pandemic. Um, I, John Lee has said the two things aren't mutually exclusive, but uh, w w what would you expect? What would you like to see there, uh, Andrew Leung? Well, I think the pandemic is, um, uh, is no easy answer uh, because uh, Hong Kong is not an island in the southern Pacific. Um, we are um, geographically, constitutionally, economically, financially intertwined uh, with the mainland. And, and of course, mainland uh, China uh, is the Western country, not just, just in terms of ideology, but in terms of population. You know, China is one-fifth of mankind, 20% of the human race on the planet. Mm -hmm. And then if you just, you just apply this uh, death rate, uh, which seems to be uh, acceptable in the West to China, um, using the same kind of um, uh, herd community mentality, that would translate into you know four billion or five billion deaths. Um, and then, of course, a lot of the elderly people in China do not have a very high rate of vaccination. So I think that that's again a reality we've got to compare to, to, to. But Andrew, one of the other realities is that our job for China is to be connected internationally, globally. Oh, sure. Yeah, sure. But do you, you've, got to, you've got to strike a balance, though, uh, because uh, uh, you, 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 can't, you can't say, well, I would, um, on the one hand, we can close the border. Uh, on the other hand, we let the um, uh, open up Hong Kong. Um, uh, but then the, uh, the rate of infection, is, uh, even though not the rate of deaths, uh, is not going to increase in Hong Kong. And then if the rate of uh, infections is high in Hong Kong, uh, then um, the chances of opening up the border with the mainland would so, forever be close. So we choose? And, 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 and don't underestimate the contribution uh, of the mainland 
uh, to Hong Kong's economy. Well, of course, it's huge, but don't we have to choose which one should come first? Well, you, you just can't. As I said, Hong Kong is very different. It's just like the two wings uh, of an aeroplane. No, uh, that was in a different context you said that. <laughs> that was a different context you said that. We are one country. We, we do have two systems. Our job for China is to relate to the rest of the world. How can we do that if we stay closed? Well, I think that we... we uh, that's why John, John Lee, um, I think this morning, uh, reported in the news, uh, that he he's realizes that he has got to um, um, keep the, the, the rate of infection down, suppressed it to an acceptable level. Uh, how he's going to do it, um, I don't know. Um, because um, at the end of the day... Um, it, 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 it seems to be spreading, it refuses to go away. Um, but I think that if the, 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 the whole situation settles down to be, to be becoming an, an endemic, uh, the same applies to Shanghai. Well, that's why Shanghai has opened up already. Um, uh, almost, you know, I would say 95%. I mean, Shanghai, of course, is an in, uh, international city. Uh, and, and a lot of foreigners are still living in Shanghai, working in Shanghai. They're leaving, Andrew. They're leaving well, they sure, in but dozens. Then, but then you've got to, 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 to look at the whole picture. Of course, there are some people leaving. There are some people leaving Hong Kong. Uh, it doesn't mean Hong Kong is going to sing, it's going to collapse. Why hasn't um, set Beijing done better with vaccination the elderly? I take your point. Yes, there's over 50 million senior citizens in the mainland not vaccinated. So with yeah. anything like a Western death toll, you're talking two, three, four, five million deaths. Yes, that would be unacceptable. Then why not make uh, vaccination mandatory in the mainland? Well, uh, it, is, it is easier said than done because I mean, a, lot, some, a lot of the elderly people live in remote villages as well, in other villages in, in, in the provinces. And, and so... Um, uh, it, it is it's a huge task, but don't forget that the um, kind of um, pandemic regime in China is very very strict already. Mm. Um, and then they are they are all, they are, they are all, almost making the vaccination uh, mandatory and testing and so on and so forth. Um, I, I think looking at the data so far um, for the country as a whole, accounting for one fifth of mankind on the planet. Uh, China hasn't done too badly. So, uh, and, of course, they are prepared to sacrifice um, the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the economy to a certain extent, at least for the time being. So um, it, it's typical of um, uh, what Beijing is doing all the time, taking a longer view uh, rather than concentrating on the temporary. John Bernstein, how much of a problem is this going to be for the Lee administration, do you think? I mean, does it come down to a choice between trying to get the border with the mainland open or, or having more international uh, travel resuming? Uh, this is a huge problem for John Lee, I believe. It's not an either-or choice. I agree with Andrew on this. In fact, I agree with most of everything he had to say on this. This is, um, you know, I think that Hong Kong is a part of China. It will take uh, its direction and lead from the central government on this issue. Uh, Professor Lowe has said he's interested in science-based policies. Well, the last government was, too. But in the end, John Lee is, is required to make what are basically political decisions, balancing various things 
in the community within the restricted autonomy that he has to do that. So um, we are, we the, the, the situation in Hong Kong seems to be improving if you look at deaths, if you look at ICU admissions and these kinds of things, which are very important. Remember also that the mainland has decided not to use mRNA vaccines. So it is using its own vaccines, and so there is a problem about the efficacy, I would say, of these vaccines. So that's another issue as well. You know, you cannot, you cannot um, I understand why the mainland government says that, you know, the huge death rate from opening up is just completely unacceptable to the government and the people of China. I think, in, in, in fairness, our medical experts say three doses of Sinovac provides a pretty good protection. Mm. Yes, okay. And, so, and China's but, developing its own mRNA. All right, but it, where is it? You know, I mean, so, so let's... I agree with you, you know, Mike. You said, uh, you know, why not just go around and jab every last person over 60. I don't understand why they don't do that here either, um, not, not just on the mainland. This is, uh, this is a bit of a mystery. Well, uh, I'd like to add another dimension there, uh, because I think uh, Beijing is well aware of, of, of the situation um, and is introducing um, oral, um, you know, sort of, medicine, uh, because the idea of the so-called zero COVID is not absolutely, is not targeting and making sure there is no case. But the, the, the thing is that with a fifth of mankind uh, on the planet living in China, uh, the main thing is to nip things in the bud uh, and to, uh, with early detection, uh, early treatment, and early prevention. So I think that they're introducing um, you know, various um, varieties of oral kind of medicine uh, really to try to dip things in the bud, as it were. It was to soften the effect of people who get it. And I think there's been a lot of advances internationally yeah. of ha strengthening people so they can better cope with having been infected, uh, antivirals and so on. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Especially in developing countries, in Africa, for example, you know, in Latin America. Um, just going back to what we were talking about uh, a little bit before, uh, there was a, a mention of uh, vested interests and having to overcome vested interests in uh, spurring development here in Hong Kong. Um, um, who, who do you think those vested interests uh, might be? Who is being referred to there? Andrew Lang. Oh, well, um, I think that you look at um, President Xi's, again, the so-called four, uh, four musts and four hopes. Um, especially the, um, 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 the, uh, the, the four hopes, as it were, um, about the livelihood issues, um, because the livelihood issues are affected by vested interests, because um, Hong Kong's economy is extremely uh, narrow, um, tilted towards too much towards property, finance, uh, or logistics and trade, um, with limited upward movement for the young people. 
But of course, President Xi put a lot of emphasis on the young people. Um, and I mentioned the loss of nationhood and all that, but there was also the frustration that uh, a lot of the young people have got to work on the average about 12 hours a day, even if they have a university education, because the housing is so expensive and rents are expensive. Many of them are living in subdivided flats as well, just to make a living, let alone raising a family. So I think the, the Western interest being defined as that um, big businesses, you see that the big names are everywhere, you know, sort of um, in utilities, in the supermarkets, uh, transport, um, telecommunication, you name it, you know what the names are. Um, it's, it's not that there's nothing wrong with that. But then um, I think that the government should be doing more to open up the market um, a bit broader, to bring in new um, businesses, enterprises, especially encouraging uh, innovation, um, particularly young people. Don't forget, um, one of the world's, well, not one of the world, is the world's largest drone maker in the world, including making military drones for the United States and other countries. Um, was someone who lived in Hong Kong, and he found that, that DJI, but then Hong Kong's economy is so narrow that he decided to move to Shenzhen and started his own company, which becomes a worldwide leader. So I think that that's the, the, the kind of um, widening um, the economy, and of course that's the, uh, the, the job force on the shoulder of the new chief executive. Okay. Well, stay with us. Uh, we've got to take a break uh, in a moment for the news summary. We'll be back uh, at three minutes past nine. Uh, we're talking this morning about uh, the challenges and priorities of the new John Lee administration. Uh, if you want to get in touch, uh, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call on 233 A quick uh, look at the weather. Uh, cloudy with showers and thunderstorms. Uh, top temperature today around 30 degrees. Fresh south to southwesterly winds, strong offshore and on high ground. The outlook, uh, occasional showers and thunderstorms in the next couple of days. The weather will improve gradually in the latter part of this week. It's currently 29 degrees, humidity 81%, strong monsoon signal in effect. Sooner or later, we will accumulate a sufficient number of heavy artillery and other types of weaponry that will allow us to go to, on counter-offensive and liberate our lands and not just the Donetsk and Luhansk region, but also other parts of Ukraine which are temporarily occupied by these war criminals and aggressors. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And welcome back to Back Chat with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And this morning, uh, for the next uh, 15 minutes or so, we're talking about the uh, challenges facing the new uh, John Lee administration. We have with us John Burns, Emeritus Professor of Politics and Public Administration at the University of Hong Kong, and Andrew Leung, International and Independent China Strategist and former Director General of Social Welfare. And also now joining us is uh, Ho Lok Sang, a Director of the Pan Sutong Shanghai Hong Kong Economic Policy Research Institute. That's at Lingnan University. Uh, Pan Sutong, uh, uh, sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh, long, sorry. Oh, long, sorry. Sorry, thanks for joining us. Good morning. 
There was a lot of talk uh, uh, over the weekend about the importance of youth and, and doing things for the Territory's youth and helping the youth to develop. Uh, uh, Alice Mack, the new youth minister, says she'll be uh, looking for ways to better engage with the youth. Um, how do you think the new administration is going to achieve that? Uh, it's very difficult to tell, but uh, I'm pretty sure that it knows its priorities at this time. And the priorities are right, and also I think uh, they have the, um, the, the environment to carry out what they want. Uh, but exactly what kind of policy would that be effective, I still have to uh, uh, watch. You know, it's difficult to tell what they're going to do. But uh, all the signs are that uh, they um, are pretty focused on the tasks, and which is good. Professor um, <coughs> morning. The, a lot of these phrases seem rather woolly. Uh, can you give us some specific things uh, the government could do to uh, improve uh, its relations with youth, young people? Well, for the young people, um, one of the things that young people are very concerned about uh, is the true priority, which is, the, which is housing. And... Uh, um, Many of them are thinking of uh, forming a family, but uh, if they form a family, they, they think that they need to buy, or at least to have a, a, a home uh, that they can call home and uh, not need to fear about uh, rent raises, you know, every uh, one year, two years. You know? Right. So, so, so I think that is a top priority and that the government has to deal with that. Is there a uh, failure here of... Of the, of the market in the sense that the private sector's response to high land prices is to make the flats smaller and smaller and smaller so that they become think, affordable. Whereas I think it's not... It, you see, the market uh, responds to the environment, the market environment, and responds to policies. And uh, I have been uh, accusing the government of... Uh, uh, making the wrong policies, you know, uh, since uh, 2010, you know, because uh, um, when they uh, introduced these uh, special stamp duties, SSD, uh, they didn't realize that this is going to, to cause a, 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 a huge shortage, you know, at the lower end, you know, because uh, startup homes typically uh, uh, come from people moving up, you know, trading up. And if people uh, are in fear of the SSD, you know, being tied up for two or three years, then they don't trade up. And if they don't trade up, there's no, no supply. And that's why these uh, start-to-home prices started uh, rocketing, you know, and actually uh, outpacing uh, the, the prices of bigger and uh, uh, more luxurious homes. And that is very clear, and uh, I don't know why the government doesn't look at it, and, and, and they just keep saying that, okay, this is uh, demand management. Yeah, and demand management has been successful in terms of uh, uh, um, 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 stopping speculation. There's not much speculation, but uh, on the one hand, uh, the demand for speculation uh, properties has been, uh, um, you know, uh, cut to zero, 
but suppliers also cut tremendously, you know, and that is why uh, the prices of these smaller homes became more and more expensive. And then the responding to the market, uh, the developers were started to, 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 to build smaller and smaller homes, and that's what we've seen. And uh, I don't know why they, the government never really looks at those things. Uh, jo- John Burns, do you think there might be a way out of this? Because w- one of the uh, accepted material expectations is a bigger apartment, isn't it? Yes, of course. So the first thing I would say about this is we need to know what young people want. We need to know what their expectations are. We can't just assume them. And this requires reestablishing a CPU-like body to engage in polling and to understand these expectations. That central policy unit. Yes, something something like that. So we need to... We need to be on the ground. What do they want? What are the expectations? Not just assuming that they're all only material. They are material. The other thing about this, though, is related to what we were discussing before the break, and that is vested interests. And who are they? If you look at Alice Poon's book, Land and the Ruling Class in Hong Kong, you will see that she identifies the, the tycoon land, land property developer uh, class as precisely this. And, and they are empowered by our unreformed public finance system. And this system values high land prices. So valuing high land prices, a very narrow, narrow revenue base, all of these kind of things need to be reformed, and this is a major project. This goes way beyond the kind of things that have been discussed so far. I haven't heard anyone discussing this. This is a colonial legacy that goes all the way back to the 1840s, and, but somehow and if you want to bust up the vested interests, you have to move away from land finance, public finance. Mm. Andrew Lang, do you agree yep. with that? So you, would you be expecting uh, reforms in those areas? Yeah, well, this is the uh, very high priority um, um, on, on um, John Lee's uh, agenda um, because uh, this is really the heart of a lot of frustrations uh, for the young people and, and other uh, citizens in Hong Kong. Uh, as far as land supply is concerned, of course, there is the, um, the huge uh, project, the Northern Metropolis, uh, but also uh, thoughts about uh, releasing um, the kind of small house uh, land in the new territories, uh, or even making uh, fringes um, uh, near the country parks, uh, because Hong Kong is, is, is fortunate, uh, or, or unfortunate, it depends how you look at it, uh, of having almost half our, our land um, in, um, as designated the country parks. Whereas the, the lot of the population squeeze in tiny cubicles. Um, but on the other hand, um, I, I think that he has uh, referred to two, two, two measures. One is to accelerate uh, the supply of public housing using prefabricated um, kind of technology. Um, I think that this would uh, play some way in re- releasing more units uh, to, to the uh, at least shortening the waiting list a little bit. Um, uh, the second one is, is, of course, to solve some of the bottlenecks uh, in the bureaucracy, uh, making um, the process of releasing land 
um, approvals and so on, uh, regulations and so on, uh, much more efficient. Um, the third thing, um, he may or may not be thinking about it, is to look at what other countries or other cities are doing. Um, for example, in London, um, there was a great deal of uh, uh, private-public partnership uh, in the sense that in the private development, and of course, of course Hong Kong, the, all the lands are uh, in the hands of private developers, uh, it's possible for the government to, um, uh, through the uh, granting of land uh, uh, concession to the land premium, reserve um, a certain proportion uh, for eligible uh, home buyers at reduced rates. But of course, these units would not be built to the same standard or luxurious standard. Uh, so it's a kind of mixed kind of thing, and that could help release uh, more private housing units to the market. But that would be a sea change in, in the Hong Kong um, kind of market supply, because we, we're now in um, almost like a, um, a ghetto kind of uh, development, in the sense that certain spots are reserved for expensive right. upper-class housing. Whereas in, 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 in London and other cities, there's always a mixture. Is, is then, it? Uh, through this mixed kind of development, you can release a lot of land in the hands of private developers and, 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 and increase the supply uh, of suitable units at reduced rates to eligible um, applicants. Andrew, is there a case for setting a minimum size of apartment? Well, definitely. I, I think that the, the government is uh, waking up to it because it's inhuman. Um, for some of these cage uh, cubicles. I mean, you can't even move around in a toilet, for example. Um, and, and I think that the uh, uh, rules are being drawn up. Um, but of course, the kind of minimum uh, in Hong Kong uh, may not be acceptable even in other more generous cities as far as land supply is concerned. But at least, um, at least preventing the kind of uh, inhuman uh, situation. Uh, happening in a, in, in a modern city like Hong Kong. Yes, apartments that are smaller than parking spaces. It's a shoebox. You know? I mean, this, this is this is ridiculous. Mm. Um, so I think that that that, the, that, uh, that brings to uh, the very important uh, issue facing um, uh, of this new administration is the kind of silo mentality. You know, people don't think outside the box. The, 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 the people who are dealing with the supply, they can't think of um, the planning department, the, the other departments. So it's up to um, John Lee and his uh, top aides uh, to really coordinate and, and, and really think outside the box to, to make sure mm. that there is a, um, a more decent and faster, more efficient supply, both in the private private um, uh, housing and public housing. Okay, we'll, we'll, go, we'll go back to Holok Sang in a moment, but, uh, but John Byrne, so would you, would you expect then that, uh, that uh, better interdepartmental cooperation is going to be one of John Lee's priorities? Well, he said so, um, and we certainly noticed that during COVID, lack of coordination among departments was a big issue. I read, I think, that he also talked about our are um, the new government being that each of these secretaries being independent i think this is a mistake to look at it this way this is unless this is further elaborated because as andrew said we do have silos the silos are very great mm -hmm. and 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 how we're going to 
uh, tackle these, I don't know. But nobody wants to address this issue that I've put on the table of fundamental public finance reform. Mm. Okay. What about that, guys? Not Band-Aids. <laughs> yeah, can okay. I make a quick... quick yes, please. Mark, yeah, yes, please, my, please. I need to go right now. Okay, fine, fine. Sorry. Yes, Hold on. Saying, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I want to point out that uh, uh, Hong Kong's low tax rate regime is actually very much based on the fact that we are collecting so much revenue you know, from, from land-based sources. Uh, it's estimated that um, a quarter or more of Hong Kong's uh, fiscal revenue actually uh, is related to, to land. Um, so so um, if we uh, try to move away from that, it means that we need to raise taxes, you know, and that will... Uh, Jeopardize, you know, mm-hmm. our competitiveness, mm-hmm. and I think that's a very important point to note. Okay. Another point that I want to make is that, uh, uh, referring to vested interests, I want to say that uh, all those uh, existing uh, home owners, as as well as existing public housing uh, uh, tenants, they are also vested interests, you know, because they don't want. Uh, more housing built in the area you see so each time there's an attempt you know to increase housing in the area there's always objection yeah. you know and it's Not very clear yeah, yeah. They, they of course it, it means traffic is going to be more congested it means there will be more demand on community facilities and so on that's expected but that's something that the government has to deal with but they always come out and stop try to stop and mm. Increase in supply in yes. the areas, and Andrew, and I think that's a, a big problem that we have to. And Andrew, of course, alluded to one of the. We seem to be tiptoeing around it that the vested interests are property developers, and Andrew also hinted that maybe the hungry cook as well. Yeah. I, well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I need to go. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. Uh, All right. I yeah. hope you have a good. Sure. Okay, Okay, thanks very much uh, for speaking to us on the programme this morning. Uh, Holok Sang there, the director of the Pansu Tong Shanghai Hong Kong Kong Economic Policy Research Institute. That's at Lingnan University. Um, Thank you very much to Andrew Leung, international and independent China strategist and former director general of social welfare, and also to John Burns, emeritus professor of politics and public administration at the University of Hong Kong. Thanks to the uh, three of you for joining our discussion and for the last uh, uh, 10 minutes or so of this morning's programme, we're going to be turning our attention to the latest uh, COVID-19 situation um, here uh, in Hong Kong and maybe we'll look uh, elsewhere as well. Uh, We're joined by Dr Siddharth Sridhar, Clinical Assistant Professor at the Department of Microbiology at the University of Hong Kong. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, Thanks very much uh, for joining us again. now, just looking at the uh, latest figures, so uh, so the uh, the daily case load has uh, has fallen. Um, that's being sort of put down to the uh, typhoon that we had uh, over the weekend um, and stopping people going out, getting tested, etc. Uh, but the, the, looking at the hospital figures, so there were 671 people being treated uh, in hospital. Uh, that's the latest figure I've seen. That was 35 up uh, from the previous day two in ICU and uh, thankfully no further fatalities. But uh, um, what should we make of these figures? Uh, Hospitalisations do seem to be steadily increasing, don't they? 
Um, I think the most important figures that we have to keep an eye on are rates of severe disease. So mm-hmm. that is best reflected really by the ICU figures because yep. uh, these are the people who really, really need to be in hospital because they're very sick with COVID. Uh, thing with hospitalization figures is in the Hong Kong context, it can be a bit difficult to interpret because when we do have hospital capacity like we have right now, uh, there is a tendency for uh, people with COVID to end up in hospital, even if they have relatively milder illness, particularly if they're elderly in uh, from uh, 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 residential care homes, because there's a, there is a strong tendency for uh, care homes to uh, want to send these elderly to hospital uh, for various reasons, uh, least being, you know, I mean, most being infection control at the uh, center itself, at the elderly care home itself. So the hospitalization figures take it with a pinch of salt. If the cases go up further, we might indeed see a surge, a small surge in hospitalization. But the ICU and death figures are the ones uh, to watch. We do expect some fluctuations. So say we have uh, uh, increasing transmission in the community, we would expect to see some increases across the board, but uh, nothing compared to what we saw in the fifth wave. Mm-hmm. So, so those uh, hospitalisation figures, they could include well, people with mild symptoms or who, who are just there for, to, to be under observation or something? Absolutely. I mean, it's, very, it's quite common. So say you have an elderly person who's coming into the emergency department, newly diagnosed with COVID with a very high fever, and perhaps, uh, you know, some changes on a chest x-ray. It's, it's, uh, sometimes the uh, uh, triage doctor might feel more comfortable keeping the uh, uh, patient in for observation, and that would count as a hospitalization, although the person may not require oxygen and within a few days might be good to go back home. Right. Uh, to the care home, but it's still included as a hospital sure. So the care home's instinct will be to protect the other residents by getting the newly infected cases out out of there, Absolutely. and and the triage nurse and doctors behind her will be saying, "Wait a minute, here's an elderly person with a fever. To be on the safe side, let's admit him." That's so, yeah. That's very common in Hong Kong. That's and in very fact. Common. If we yeah. if we act like that, we actually reduce the ICU burden quite a lot because the case uh, doesn't become more serious. Arguably, but I, I would I would say to that that we actually have better ways of preventing severe disease, which is basically vaccination. Right. So elderly of that age should have their three to four doses, mm-hmm. and um, we have the pills. So we have uh, molnupiravir and Paxlovid, the new antivirals. So if elderly are diagnosed with COVID, they should be started on this as early as possible right. in the community. Hospitalization is expensive. Hospitalization is disruptive to elderly. It really, really disorients them. So mm. it's not a great solution. But Hong Kong has had a long-standing issue with this, which is nothing related to COVID. That elderly with relatively mild illness seem to end up in inpatient facilities, and uh, COVID is just a symptom of that. Really, just seeing. What's happening internationally now? Uh, I mean, uh, people are moving on. Really, I mean, it's it well and truly seem to be emerging from COVID. Cases are surging uh, uh, and falling everywhere in the world. And uh, uh, but, but, but what does seem to hold across the board is that severe disease is uh, very, very low compared to previous uh, surges and waves. So travel restrictions are uh, slowly, I mean, rapidly, I would say, becoming a thing of the past. Mm. 
Is there much that we can learn about the virus from looking at uh, the situation elsewhere? I'm thinking about uh, the UK now in particular because uh, it's had a, a big surge in new infections. I think about two and a half million people have tested positive uh, uh, since, the, uh, since the beginning of June. Um, and a, a, a lot of people are, get, are becoming reinfected as well. The virus seems to be able to... Uh, you know, come back several times. So is, is, is there much that we can learn from that situation? Yeah, I mean, as always, I think we can predict what's going to happen in Hong Kong based on the overseas experience. So their experience very much has been uh, successive um, sublineages or types of Omicron in a way. So first they had BA1, then it was BA2, then it was BA4 slash BA5. And uh, so Hong Kong had a, a big BA2 wave so that might be telling us that in the months to come, the ones to look out for are BA, you know, 2.12.1, BA4, BA5, etc. And uh, these would establish footholds in Hong Kong, which they are actually right at the moment because we're seeing increasing transmission by these uh, uh, subvariants. But I mean, uh, who cares, right? Uh, what's in a name? Because at the end of the day, the rates of severe disease are kept low. So if more people come down with their respiratory illness, uh, which is mild, we used to have that all the time, even before COVID. A lot of things used to go around. We paid no attention to it. You'd find everybody around you and your colleagues, you know, whistling. <laughs> you mean, and, you mean uh, like a common it, cold or something? Like yeah. a common cold, and yeah. it used to pass. So increasingly, uh, COVID is uh, starting to fall into that pattern. And it's not that the virus is necessarily getting milder. It's just that like in Hong Kong, all around the world, people are either infected in the past or vaccinated or both. So their bodies know how increasingly know how to deal with the virus. I'm not minimizing COVID because it's still a massive problem for the elderly and people with weakened immunity. But for the rest of the population, it's uh, clearly heading back to normal very quickly. Is this like a natural development? Has this happened with other viruses that uh, over time that we, we develop our own sort of natural immunity to them? Absolutely, because we, there are other coronaviruses out there that infect humans. Uh, there are four of them, and we call them seasonal coronaviruses. Most mm. of the infections mm. are mild, but when they first emerged in humans, uh, they were probably very severe illnesses indeed. Um, but over time, our bodies got used to them through multiple waves of infection. And in this pandemic, the, the saving grace has been the vaccines because it's given our a great way for our body to train ourselves to deal with these, uh, uh, deal with this new virus. Mm. And but we we still have some way to go with vaccines, don't we? I mean, we still have this problem. We 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 always mention it, but there are still a lot of elderly people, especially over eighty, who haven't been vaccinated. Yeah, uh, third doses are an issue because you really do need that third dose for dealing with Omicron and its uh, derivatives. Um, yeah, so, so for the elderly in particular, or for people who have not got vaccinated before, this talk of uh, an Omicron booster uh, might be important uh, because it gives them right. that added protection against an Omicron variant as well. Moderna seemed to be close to uh, a one that targets om right. uh, Omicron. That's right, that's right. So I, I, they have a candidate that includes actually both the ancestral type, uh, that, that's our existing vaccines, as well as the Omicron uh, vaccine. At, the, at the beginning, all the emphasis was, this is not like flu, it's much more deadly, um, get vaccinated. 
we seem to be moving towards if you're vaccinated and it is becoming for you more like flu. Absolutely, it's moving towards that. So, um, I mean, at the end, at 2021, when Delta, when the Delta variant was around, it was much, much more severe than flu. Um, with Omicron and with the increasing vaccination rates around the world, it's it started to really approach that, uh, you know, the influenza standard, if you would call it, where it's still a massive, it's still a problem. I mean, influenza is a nasty thing to have, especially if you have uh, risk factors for severe disease, and uh, COVID is uh, really uh, no different to that. It remains to be seen as we go forward if it really falls even below the influenza threshold, but uh, that that might uh, take some time. So it's, it's yeah, it's not a great thing uh, to have by any means, but... Uh, like influenza, which we have really accepted <laughs> uh, in in human communities, I think we don't have a choice with COVID. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, we hear that you know the new Omicron subvariants, like you mentioned BA four, BA five, uh, they're highly transmissible. But um, what is their transmissibility rate like compared with, say, uh, the regular flu virus? Um, a much higher, but mm. the, the reason it is much higher is mainly because uh, of their immune evasion. So it is because the BA4, BFI is really able to um, well, escape, in a sense, uh, people's ability to fend off infection. Um, we first saw that with Omicron with relation to the previous variants, and now we're seeing BA4, BFI seems to be uh, increasingly able to do that even compared to BA1. And but, but if you look at other respiratory viruses, you know, uh, th- th- that's what they do as well, because every few months or a year or two, every one or two years, you would have a new variant that comes out that is able to evade uh, uh, people's ability to fend off infection. Mm-hmm. It doesn't do much, they do them much harm. It's a brief illness and it passes, but it is able to um, infect them and then they're able to uh, pass the infection on to others. So it's a similar pattern. Um, I think over time we will we, we really would probably start spending less attention on these uh, variant details, and uh, I, I think that will really be, become more of a realm of uh, sure. interest for people in the field, okay. Okay, rather sure. than the general public. Okay, okay, and and just to re-emphasize, of course, the uh, the best way to ensure to protect yourself against um, uh, getting uh, badly ill is to be vaccinated. So. Okay. Great. Thanks very much for joining us uh, on the programme this morning. Dr Siddharth Sridhar, Clinical Assistant Professor at the Department of Microbiology at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, thanks to our listeners. Um, thanks very much to, to you, Mike, our co-host this morning. Yeah, and previous... Uh, COVID patient. Right, right, okay. I'm glad you're fully recovered. Uh, Okay, uh, a quick look 